My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, or a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom all the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Um, let's just pray before we turn our attention to what God has to say from that passage. Dear Lord God, we thank you for your goodness and love. Lord, we do pray that uh, as we study your word tonight, we would hear from you, that we would see what your word has to say, we would understand it, and Lord, we would apply it to our hearts and our lives. Amen.
Well, having been thinking about this passage for a while, I've come to a conclusion. Perhaps not the conclusion you would have expected. I've come to the conclusion that the problem with Christianity is grace. If we look at that passage, we see that there are things springing up in the church that all arise from grace. So what is grace? Grace is receiving good things that we don't deserve. We receive for free something of immense value and we did nothing to earn it. It goes hand in hand with mercy. Mercy is the pardon of God for the wrongs that we've done. It's when we deserved punishment and without deserving it we received pardon. What's the problem with that? That sounds great. Well, the problem with that is just insulting. Because grace means I didn't work for it. Grace means I was unworthy and grace means that you were unworthy too. It means that we all needed something that we couldn't achieve for ourselves. Not only we couldn't achieve it for ourselves, but we couldn't even contribute to it ourselves. And the problem with that is it just goes against the way we see ourselves. We don't want to cast ourselves as spiritual beggars, but that's what grace makes us. Humanity is grace-resistant, and out of the resistance to grace grows, springs, Jesus plus religion. Got to build on what Jesus has done. And that's what's happening here in that church that Paul was writing to. There were people who said, Jesus is a good start, but you've got to have more. You need this more. And Jesus was just a start. Now, few would be so bold as to say that in a respectable, Bible-believing church like Emmanuel in Chippenham. Nobody would be bold enough to say that. But I think it's the drift of our heart, it's the bias of our lives to want to bring something of value and to not feel like everything's been received by grace. Paul was writing the church here where there's a threat of false teachers peddling this Jesus plus. And Paul saw that that could shipwreck the faith of believers, spoil the mission of the church. All the time you'll hear people in churches going on about this Paul. Well, who is he? Well, Paul was an apostle, a sent messenger from God. Paul was the man who used his position of educated privilege and his power to destroy the church or to seek to. Paul had the first Damascus Road experience when he met the risen Christ. And his life turned around. He gave up that privilege And he used all of his energy for the building of the church. He gave up that privilege and faced beating and hunger, peril in the sword for the sake of this message. And Paul in this passage that we had points out some errors. Verses 16 and 17, he points out that people have added to what Christ has done by seeking to keep rules and rituals. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, Old Testament rules, or regarding religious festivals, new moon celebrations, or a Sabbath day. 
There were people who were trying to bolt on the Old Testament to the New Testament, as if for a full experience you needed to keep these things, or as if to be an authentic follower you needed to keep these things. And Paul says they were just shadows. Don't hold on to the shadow. Go to Christ, who is the real thing, the fulfilment. And then verse 18 and 19, springing from our allergy to grace, Paul warns us, don't let anyone who delights in false humility or the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. So the first of those errors, this false humility, or if you've got an ESV on your lap or on your app, asceticism, the harsh treatment of the body. This sprung from the belief that the body is sinful and the spirit is pure and we must purge the body, uh, purge ourselves from the sinfulness of the body by harsh treatment. We must do something for our holiness. And the second of those things, this strange phrase, this very odd phrase about the worship of angels. It's generally thought that this is a teaching about a higher level worship, a more heavenly worship that the spiritual elite claimed to have. And they could initiate you into Christianity 2.0, the VIP lounge of Christianity. And they'd been there and they'd seen it and they told you about it in great detail. And in verse 18, Paul tells us that the teacher has become puffed up. The teacher has become proud. Pride is never the outcome of grace. So they got it wrong. Verse 20 to 23, we've got the rules and regulations brigade. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. The basic principles prohibitions on food and on drink. And don't we see this in religions? Muslims with pork and alcohol, Mormons with tea and coffee. It's all outside-in religion. It's observance. And it says this outside stuff makes us impure. And Christ told us it's what comes from the inside that defiles us, not what comes from the outside. Verse 23, again, if you had the ESV on your lap, you would see uh, that self-imposed worship is translated as self-made religion. What man has done. And that religion is set to calm the unruly appetites, to control the unruly appetites in our bodies. Paul says it lacks any value in restraining Central indulgence. This man-made stuff does no good in dealing with the problem. But I started by saying grace is the problem with Christianity. And we've seen the things that people will add on to avoid grace. Mankind wants to make his own way to God, to be accepted and to be holy. And through history has worked very hard to do that by effort. Here Paul tries to protect the Christians from that lure, from that teaching that would shipwreck them. We see it in verse 2. Paul's purpose is to help us. In verse 2, my purpose is that you may be encouraged. This is like a general with the troops 
getting them ready for battle, to put courage into their hearts. And he wants to give them a uniting factor that will help them to stand, that you'll be united in love. So the troops have now got courage, they've got unity and esprit de corps, and he wants them to understand the treasure that they have, the full riches. They've got something to battle for, to defend, because they have the full riches of the knowledge and wisdom of Christ. Those incomparable treasures are theirs. And you see that word, the mystery of God, that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. And that's what I want to spend our time thinking about now. See, the false teachers had their secrets, their initiations, their higher knowledge, none of it measured up to what's been plainly revealed by God himself, all the mysteries revealed in Christ. So we've seen that grace is a problem, but let's see that grace is also amazing. We see the grace of God in the face of Christ. We see the mystery of God revealed in Jesus. What Christ reveals about God is that God is not distant and angry. He stands ready to forgive. But what Christ reveals about God is that sin is a problem and sin is serious and a price must be paid. What Christ reveals about God is that God has taken the initiative and it's not man clambering up, but God reaching down and has done all the work. And all we need to do now is believe in his son, his death, his burial and his resurrection. As I've been preparing this week, verse 6 and 7 have really uh, eaten into me and become those pieces that I've remembered. Verse 6, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. Christ, the anointed Messiah. Jesus, the Saviour. Lord, the Sovereign, who is Sovereign Ruler. And that's our message, isn't it? Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. Our message is to rebellious and guilty sinners. Our message is to those who are under judgment, shamed and defenceless, those who are flat out broke and buried under a mound of sin, a mound of spiritual debt that they can never pay. Now the message comes that you will have a clean slate, a fresh start, But you and I know that a fresh start is of no use because within minutes we will have messed up that slate again, blotted our copybook. Fresh slate, it's not really going to do it. But it tells me also this message that he will take away my debt and my sin. Now that's great. And he'll give me riches. In fact, he will adopt me into his family. I will belong. The debt will be paid. I've given new clothes, a new home, new riches, new family. And when God forgives in the blood of Christ, he not only forgives the wrongs that I've done, but he forgives the wrongs that I will do. I remember first really understanding that as a young teenager. And it's just an amazing thing, isn't it? 
It's an amazing thing. The mystery of God revealed in Christ, hidden until Christ, is that the king of the universe, the author of creation, will forgive your past, your present, and your future wrongs. As we meet that message, we can deal with it in one of three ways, perhaps. Indifference, rejection, or we receive that message. And to receive that message, we've got to know about ourselves that we are helpless and condemned. To receive that message, we've got to know about Christ, that he is holy and loving and stands ready uh, to pay our price, to stand in our place and suffer the punishment. To receive that message, we need to come on our knees with empty hands. And to say with the old songwriter, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. That message can only be received with humility, metaphorically at least, on our knees. Verse 6 goes on. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue in him. The way we received him is the way we should carry on. We received him with humble, broken hearts and empty hands. And we should carry on in that same way. Grace is what we need more than anything else as humans. But grace is what we want less than anything else as humans. What is such a strange thing is that we can receive the gospel on our knees. We've done business with the God of the universe, pleading with him. And then we get up from our knees and we add and seek to do something ourselves to add to our salvation. And we've missed the point that there is nothing we can do to make ourselves more acceptable to God. There's nothing we can do more than Christ has already done to make us acceptable to God. We cannot, we must not add to grace. We cannot, we must not think Jesus plus is the answer. Now we started off seeing the problems that our, uh, our allergy to grace brings. Now Paul deals with them. So let's look at the fact that Christ deals with our not belonging by, and the power of sin. Verses 9 to 13. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you've been given fullness in Christ. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised in the putting off the sinful nature, not in the circumcision done with the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. You were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. God has made you alive in Christ. So we've seen this error that the body is sinful and a prison for the pure spirit. But we see in this verse that all the fullness of God came into Christ in bodily form. That knocks that error 
completely out, the fullness of the deity in bodily form, the mystery of Christ, uh, the mystery of God revealed in Christ, our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Christ came into the world wrapped in clay but not mired in sin. Christ came into the world and made it plain that he had all power and authority over the natural elements or the elemental spirits, as some translations put it. He did that when he uh, spoke a word and calmed the wind and the waves. Over the elemental spirits, the demons proclaimed that he was the Holy One of God and they shuddered as they obeyed his command. God demonstrated in Christ that he has come for the sick and the outsider as well. Not for the self-righteous, not for the rule-making religious people, but Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And Christ confirmed what was promised in the Old Testament, that God himself would make us holy and fit for his presence. That distance, that sin that made us unacceptable, was dealt with. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a sign of dealing with sin, of being separate and being uh, acceptable as one of God's people. That sign was circumcision, a physical outward sign given. But God never actually intended it to just be the outward thing. So Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16 says, Circumcise your hearts. Do not be stiff-necked any longer. So don't just have the outward. It was the inward that mattered. So the response to that surely is let's just try harder to be right on the inside, not just this external sign. Well, God revealed in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul and live. So this is grace again. God has done and we depend on him. God has fulfilled that in Christ's actions, which it told us here uh, in our passage. The circumcision done not with hands, but done by Christ. That circumcision done by Christ says the sinful nature has been surgically removed. Paul then moves on to a, an analogy of baptism, that the sinful nature has been buried baptism and we've been raised to a new nature raised with a new nature raised with a new life so verses 20 to 23 which talk about an outside in method of dealing with sin and paul says it just doesn't work is replaced by a new nature so a response that we can have now to our problem with sin is not beating of the body but it's tackling the sin problem that we have by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, by the new birth to this new nature, and by our knowledge that we have been loved with an incomparable love and are recipients of amazing grace. That's an inside-out dealing with the problem we have of temptation to sin. And we need to, again, Go on as we came in, humbly on our knees, as we confess our sins and thank God for his help and his forgiveness 
then in a response of love, the power of temptation will be reduced. The grace of Christ deals with our guilt and our debt. Verses 13 to 14. End of verse 13 there. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. Newer translations have that, the charge of legal indebtedness. So this code stood against us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. We've got the courtroom and we're in the dock with our heads hung in shame and the guilt of the charge sheet goes on and the guilt piles up. Or we have the picture of indebtedness and the picture here is of a debt paid. If you or I, at the time Paul was writing this letter, had gone to the marketplace and we persuaded somebody who was selling some goods there to give us credit, they would have given us the goods, they would have given us the bill, and all the time we held that bill, our debt had not been paid. The day we got the money together, we took it down to the trader, we handed over the bill, we handed over the money. He would have counted the money, He would have checked that the money wasn't a forgery. And once he was satisfied that all of it had been paid, he'd have taken that bill, he would have put it on a wooden beam across the top of his market stall and driven a nail through it. Once that nail had gone through the bill, it had been paid in full. Could never come back and ask for any payment. It was done. What a picture, because when Christ hung on the cross, having met the full requirements of the written code, with the nails driven through his hands and his feet, he said in triumph, it is finished, testelestai, it is paid. It is paid and it continues to be paid. The mystery of God is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The King who came To serve, not to be served. Served by dying a conquering death. In weakness, he displayed the greatest power in the universe. In weakness, he displayed that God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom. And the end of the story is victorious and glorious. Verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. Like a returning Roman general, Jesus leads the procession where his enemies are paraded behind him, weak and defeated and powerless. He did this at the cross. The cross was a terrible miscarriage of justice. An innocent, perfect man condemned to death. But the cross wasn't a triumph for the devil. It was the devil's defeat. The cross shows the devil's defeat. And we get this in Hebrews. Uh, If you have the opportunity to turn now to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 13, we see that the devil is defeated. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13. Here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity 
so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Christ has defeated the devil and our enemies, and he's done that at the cross. And we can have this new life, this tre- these treasures of wisdom and knowledge and acceptance and purity and being made right with God. This forgiveness of sin for a word, for a turning, because it's all of grace. So as we think about these things, what's the application? Let's go back to verse 6. Come in. Just as you've received Christ, come into this kingdom because all the riches, all the wonderful things we've talked about are yours for a word, for a turning to Christ and saying, I can't do this. I'm at the end of myself. I need you to forgive me. And if you have come in, well, go on. As you receive Christ, continue to live your lives in him, in the way that you received Christ, humbly and on your knees, rejoicing at grace, amazed by grace. So we go on to be rooted and built up, not giving in to the lure of Jesus plus teaching, but humbly accepting that Christ has done all that we need. Not getting up from our knees and trying to build a self-made religion based on the externals and on effort. But to be on our knees, humbly, continuing to be amazed with God's grace. We should remind ourselves of that response of thankfulness. And it's there in verse 7. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. This is a point for some confession, isn't it? I have to say that day to day, I barely have a trickle of thankfulness in my heart. The response isn't for me to go on a pilgrimage, to walk barefoot up a mountain until my feet bleed. The response is for me to spend settled time to know that this grace has been received, that this grace has been poured out. I just need to remind myself that I came on my knees to receive this grace. And God's grace in the face of Christ is continually held out to me. Our response is to be thankful, but also to be realistic. So I say with the hymn writer about my own heart, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above.